take your Bibles this evening, Haggai chapter 2, Haggai chapter 2, if you're able to stand with me to read the Word of God, Haggai chapter 2. We'll start in verse number 1 and go down to verse number 9 this evening. The Bible says, The seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea, and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the, than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your blessing upon the word tonight as it's given. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're moving into the second chapter of the book and the second oracle by the prophet Haggai. This oracle is given primarily to the older generation who has seen the glory of the first temple. This prophecy is less of a rebuke and more of a comfort to the people. The first prophecy was a rebuke. Remember that one? He said, how have you let my house stay in ruins? Well, you built your own houses. What followed was repentance and obedience. This time, God is speaking comfort to those. Let's say it right. So he's speaking comfort to those who are obedient. To those who fear the new temple will be less glorious than the old temple. Let's start in verse number one this evening. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, so let me pause for a moment. This takes place almost a month from the obedience of the people that we saw in chapter one. That chapter ended on the 24th day of the sixth month. This oracle comes on the 21st day of the seventh month. Let's go on, verse two. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, okay, so he's addressing the leadership of the people, and the people themselves. This is a message for everyone to hear. Verse 3. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? God is reading their thoughts. The older generation looked at the new foundation of the temple, the, the work that had begun the temple, and all they said was, this is not the temple. This is not glorious. This is not... The old is better than the new. What we had is better than what we have. 
there were people still alive who had seen the beauty and glory of the first temple. Now, I want you to keep in mind, okay, the captivity was 70 years. But the temple had been gone for less time than the captivity had lasted. Let me show you that. Turn to Jeremiah 25, verse 1. Jeremiah 25, 1. We tend to think of the captivity and the temple's destruction as one and the same event, but they weren't. They weren't the same. Jeremiah 25, verse 1. The Bible says, In the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the, the which Jeremiah the prophet spake unto all the people of Judah, and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even unto this day, that is the three and twentieth year, the word of the Lord hath come unto me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye have not hearkened. And the Lord hath sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened, nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Turn ye again now, every one from his evil way, and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land the Lord hath given you, and to your fathers forever and ever. And go not after other gods to serve them, and to worship them, and provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands, and I will do you no hurt. Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that ye might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against the inhabitants thereof, and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them, and make them an astonishment, and a hissing, and a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, and the light of the candle. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. And it shall come to pass that when seventy years were accomplished, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it a perpetual desolation. God is speaking to the people here, this disobedient people. You notice how he said, I'm going to take away the mirth, the gladness. These were glad people, weren't they? glad in their sins, celebrating their depravity, worshiping other gods, sacrificing to other gods, doing things that were commanded in the law not to do. And God says, you're doing this. You're, you're, I'm, I've sent you prophets. I've sent you those to warn you, and you ignore them to your own hurt. That's what the lost do, by the way. When we give the gospel, they ignore it to their own hurt. The gospel's there to help. That's what it does. You realize that when, when you give the gospel to someone and they reject you, they're actually opposing themselves? Same thing for us. We disobey God, isn't it? When God rebukes us and corrects us and we go on in our sin, we're hurting ourselves. God says, I'm going to take away that mirth and that gladness. I'm going to take away the light of the candle, the sound of the millstones, all the money you're making, all the wealth you're building. I'll take it all away from you and give it to the king of Babylon. So the captivity began in what's called here the first year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now turn to Jeremiah 52, verse 1. Jeremiah 52. As we know, the people, of course, did not heed the prophets. God did send the king of Babylon to take them captive 70 years. 
In Jeremiah 52, verse 1, The Bible says Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamachul, the daughter of, Jer- of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah, till he had cast him out from his presence, that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came he and all his army against Jerusalem and pitched against it and built forts against it round about. So the city was besieged into the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And in the fourth month, and the ninth day of the month, the famine was, so, was sore in the city, so that there was no bread for the people of the land. Then the city was broken up, and all the men of, the, of war fled and went forth out of the city by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden. Now the Chaldeans were uh, by the city round about, and they went by the way of the plain, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued after the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they took the king and carried him up unto the king of Babylon to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he gave judgment upon him. And the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He slew also all the princes of Judah and Riblah. Then he put out the eyes of Zedekiah, the king of Babylon, bound him in chains and carried him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. Now in the fifth month, and the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuchadnezzar, sorry about that, captain of the, of the guard, which served the king of Babylon, into Jerusalem, and burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and all the houses of the great men burned he with fire, and all the army of the Chaldeans that were with the captain of the guard, break down all the walls of Jerusalem round about. The Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captives, certain of the poor of the people, and the residue of the people that remained in the city, and those that fell away, that fell to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the multitude. So this passage tells us that the destruction of the Lord's house uh, came in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar. So he had taken captives from Jerusalem initially, put Jerusalem and put Judah under the control of Babylon. And what does it say? They rebelled against the king of Babylon. So then he said, okay, I'm going to come back and I'm going to destroy the house of the Lord. I'm going to take more people captive. Okay. So the, we tend to think of the captivity as being uh, in line with the destruction of the temple, but it wasn't. It was about 19 years later the temple was destroyed. So it's very likely, as we see in the text in, in Haggai, that there were people left who saw the temple destroyed. Remember, it wasn't a full 70 years. It was actually about 50 years the temple had been gone, not 70. Okay, So they were old people at this point, but they, were, they had seen the glory of the first temple. Now they're seeing this new temple being built, and they're mourning that it's not as beautiful as the old temple. I can't imagine the beauty of Solomon's temple. I, I think I mentioned to you guys, I think it was last Wednesday, we talked about when uh, Titus and his troops went in to destroy the temple in 70 A.D., that before they destroyed the place, they walked through it to behold the beauty of the temple, the beauty of the, the tapestries and the gold and the silver, the first Gentiles to, at least of that generation, to penetrate the Holy of Holies. And that Josephus records that they were awestruck by the beauty of the temple. Can you imagine? That was the lesser temple. Solomon's temple must have been a beautiful, ornate place of worship. And so they're mourning 
this law. Let's go back to our text in Haggai. Keep in mind, Zerubbabel had considerably less to work with than Solomon did in both manpower and money. The new temple was bigger in size to the first one, but far less beautiful than the first one. Their disobedience had robbed them of the beauty of Solomon's temple. Think about that. Not just, I mean, not just their disobedience before the captivity, but into the captivity when they're subject. So you see God's judgment upon the land, right? Nebuchadnezzar comes, he takes captives, he puts Judah under his control, and they press on. And what does Zedekiah do? The Bible says, that which was evil inside of the Lord. They continue in their evil. They continue in their sin. All right, now we're going to destroy the temple. Their disobedience cost them the beauty of the temple. Listen, church, sin will always cost us. It never pays. It robs us of beauty. It robs us of holiness. It robs us of that. I mean... Beholding the glory of God. You think David did a lot of his beautiful psalm writing during his tryst with Bathsheba? No, of course not. Now, he had a beautiful psalm of repentance, didn't he, at the end? But the glory that so filled the eyes of David was clouded during that time. Sin had robbed him of his, the beauty of his relationship with God. I mean, David, who sat under the stars being chased by Saul, his life constantly in danger. And he's like, my eyes behold the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. And day after day utter his... I mean, he's expounding on the beauty and glory of God and the stars. But I imagine that was probably clouded by his sin with Bathsheba. Sin robs us, church. It robs us of the joy of our salvation. You, can, if you're saved, you cannot live in sin and have the joy of the Lord. You can pretend for a time. But the true joy of the Lord is taken from you when you live in sin. These people had been promised the fun of their sin. But now as they stand beholding this lesser temple, they weep, remembering what they had before. I think I mentioned once before the phrase, they got what they wanted, but they lost what they had. Adam and Eve got what they wanted, the knowledge of good and evil, but they lost what they had. They can no longer walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. David got what he wanted, another man's wife, but he lost what he had that relationship with God, that joy. He cried out so passionately in that repentance psalm, Lord, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. The Jews got what they wanted to dabble in the sins of the nations around them, the gods of the nations, but they lost what they had, the beauty of Solomon's temple. Solomon got what he wanted, all the fame, all the wisdom, all the wealth, all the women, and he got to the end of his life and he wrote the saddest book of the Bible. It's all vanity. 
It's all nothing. In other words, Solomon got what he wanted, but he lost what he had. If you dabble in sin, if we dabble in sin as Christians, we'll get what we want. That sin brings pleasure for a season. But we're going to lose what we have. I'm not saying you can't get back the joy of the Lord. But there are sins that will take so much from you that you'll never restore what you once had. That's why we should run from sin. It always robs. It never pays what it promises. Israel had taken for granted God's faithfulness, his kindness, the wealth and the honor he had bestowed upon Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to make this place a hissing. (laughs) I'm going to make it desolate. It's going to sit barren. All the honor I I put upon it, I'm taking away. If you're back in Haggai, look at verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord. And work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you. When you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. Two important lessons I want to take from this portion of the scripture. The first, as I already mentioned, is the high cost of sin. The second is to not let past failures define you. Isn't that so easy to do? We let our past failures, our past sin, define who we are. We are not who we were before we were saved, first of all. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are not who you were before you were saved. If you sinned since you were saved, well, if we confess our sins, as we saw on Sunday, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It means you're not who you were when you sinned. Who were you when you sinned? You were rebellious. A rebellious son, a rebellious daughter. But now you're cleansed. You're made new. You know, God doesn't hold our sins against us, right? We don't sin, get forgiveness, sin again. And he goes, well, all right, no, I'm not going to forgive you again. You, you, you had your chance. No. He says there's sins, there are iniquities that will I remember no more. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to forget our sins. To never bring them up again. When we sin that next time... He doesn't go, again, really? No. He never brings it up again. I love that. Our sin does not define us. Don't let it define you. Don't hold on to mistakes of the past and let it keep you from fulfilling God's purposes today. That's a major problem we have today, isn't it? We hold on to who we used to be. Our past does not define us. Our forgiveness defines us. We are children of God. I understand we're sinners saved by grace. I think there's a place for that in our vocabulary. But when Paul wrote to the churches, he didn't write to the wretched sinners saved by grace, did he? He said to the saints of God at Philippi, to the saints of God at Ephesus. They're saints of God, children of God. We're defined by who we are now. Paul didn't say, Paul, the Pharisee and murderer, said, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. James and Jude didn't become believers until after the resurrection. 
They didn't say, well, James and Jude, doubters of Christ. Servants of Jesus Christ. We're defined by who Christ is today. Say, Pastor, I don't feel very righteous. If you're saved, you're righteous. You're righteous because Christ is righteous. You're holy because Christ is holy and you and I are in Christ. Say, I've sinned. Then confess it. Forsake it. Move on. We're not defined by our past. We're defined by Christ today. When we stand before God one day for judgment, he's not going to bring up all of our past. All that's going to matter is our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And by the way, everyone written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb paid for their sins. Our sins don't define us. His righteousness defines us. We also see here the comforting promise of God's presence, which is a motivation to keep going in the work. He says, I'll be with you. He says, and where are we at? Verse 4. He says, uh, be strong, all you people of the land, say the Lord, and work, for I am with you. I love the word for in the Bible. It means because. Work because I'm with you. Work because of my presence. That was a motivation, a comfort in their work. We see a very similar thing in the Great Commission, don't we? All power has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. And lo, I'm with you always. Why do, we go, why, why do we go out with the gospel? Because all power is given to him. All power is given to him. And he's with us. Who's with us? The one who all power is given to. Is that a comfort? You don't have to go out and convince people to be saved. You don't have to come up with really smart, good arguments to get them to believe. You know why? Because the one with all power is with you through the Holy Spirit. Speaking and ministering to people. Say, what if I'm not convincing enough? You don't have to be. Just be honest with the gospel and God will take care of God's part. All power is given to him and he's with you. Reuben went to the park by himself, but Christ was with him. The Holy Spirit was with him. Isn't that a comfort, Reuben, when you're out there preaching by yourself, handing out tracts by yourself? You know, I'm not alone. Christ is with me. Somebody asked George Mueller, aren't you lonely? Your wife is dead. Your daughter's dead. He says, how can I be lonely when Christ is with me? I talk to him. He talks to me. What a fellowship. What a fellowship that is. What a comfort that is. We're not alone. He doesn't work because I'm with you. I'll be your strength. I'll be your protection. I'm with you while you work. This harkens back to the promise of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, we saw that last week. The promise of, wherever you go, there I'll be. As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. Joshua, the whole land is yours to conquer. Wherever you go, there I am. He repeats that to us in Hebrews, right? What can man do to us? He said, I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. We're completely within the power and the hand of God. I love that. What a comforting thing. God mentions his covenant here. In verse number, let me show the right verse here. Number five, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. God remembers his covenant. How many times did God tell the, the Israelites, 
because of the fathers, because of the fathers, because of my promise to the fathers, God keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant to comfort dissenting people today. God keeps covenant. That's why Romans 8.1 is possible. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How can there be no condemnation to sinners? Well, easy. Drop down in Romans. You have 28, 29, 30. He which spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There's a covenant made within the Godhead. Long before this world was created. I don't know about long. I shouldn't say that. Before the foundation of the world, within the, within the Godhead, there's a covenant made to redeem mankind. And when you and I sin, he who spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for our sins, he remembers his covenant. He brings it to mind. What a comfort to sinning Christians. God remembers Some Christians say, how can God forgive me? I've sinned so much against him. Because he remembers his covenant. And his covenant was never based on you or me. He didn't save us because we were savable. He didn't save us because we were good. Had he saved us based on our works, then we should be terrified when we sin. Because if he saved us based on our goodness, then he can, if he saved us based on our goodness, he can forsake us based on our wickedness. His covenant was never based on us. It was based on the covenant that was made between the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past to save a people that Christ would die for the people. Their sins would be punished in him, not in them, and his righteousness would go to them. And when we sin, God remembers that covenant and says, oh yes, that's right, that was paid for already. So there's no condemnation now to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God remembers his covenant. That's why they asked the question, Paul asked the question in Romans chapter 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? God is for you, Christian. We need to remember that. Some people think, well, God's, God's punishing me. I didn't read my Bible enough. God's punishing me. I don't pray enough. God's punishing me. God's not against us. He's not rooting against us, Right? He's not sitting in heaven watching us going, boy, I hope they mess up. I'm going to show them what it means to mess up. That's not what God's doing. God's for us. He ministers. Yes, he disciplines. Yes, he brings us back into line. But he does that to conform us to the image of Christ. He is for us, eternally for us. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 real quick. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It's a beautiful passage right here. Ephesians 1, verse number 4. The Bible says, According as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. There it is. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to save me. He chose to show me mercy. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. How can I be holy 
and without blame? The answer is to take all my sins and to blame Jesus for them. That's what he did. He blamed Jesus for my sins. And then he took the holiness of the Son of God and he gave it to me. That's the only way I could be holy. Having predestinated us under the, under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. I love that word adoption. You know when you adopt, you can't unadopt. We're his family. He brought us into the family. According to the good pleasure of his will. Say, why did God save you? <laughs> the good pleasure of his will. That's all he's told me. To the praise of the glory of his grace, where he hath made us accepted in the beloved. You hear that? We're accepted in the beloved. Now, that's the covenant that God remembers. The covenant to adopt us, to make us accepted, to make us holy, to take away the guilt and the blame of our sin. You know, when the floods came and destroyed the earth, God covenanted never to do that again. And he said, I'm putting my bow in the sky. And when I see that, I'm going to remember my covenant. You know why? I can't make a deep theological statement, I guess, but I can suppose for a minute. You know why Jesus has the prints of the nails and the, 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 the wound in the side today? Why did he rise from the dead with that, right? We're not all going to rise with all of our injuries we had in our body. So why did he rise with those? So that when God looks upon the Son, he can remember the covenant he made. Our sins and our iniquities he'll remember no more. God remembers the covenant. Go back to Haggai. Like the rainbow, the marks on the Savior are a reminder of the covenant of God to save his people. Haggai verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. These verses lead us into a little bit of controversy, I guess, tonight, but I find them to demonstrate a beautiful and consistent framework in the scriptures. Their building was to be a picture of the work of the Messiah. Look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, this means, that word, the term once more means in a little while or in a short time, I will shake the heaven and the earth, the sea and the dry land. Continue in verse 7. I will shake all nations, and they, in other words, the shaken nations, shall come to the desire of nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. There's debate over the term desire of nations. Typically dispensationalism will interpret this as the wealth of the nations. They interpret this as the wealth of nations being brought to a future temple in Jerusalem. The problem with that is, in the passage it says, I will fill this house with glory. Not a different house, but this house with glory. I think this is a hard interpretation to come to unless you have an agenda. The Passage is quoted in Hebrews 12. So let's turn there. Hebrews 12. It's always safe to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Hebrews 12. 
Hebrews 12, 24 is where we'll start. Hebrews 12, 24. Bible says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel, see that you refuse not him that speaketh, for they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. The context here, and really throughout the book of Hebrews, is the better new covenant set against the old covenant. A new covenant was coming, and the old covenant was vanishing away. Look back at Hebrews 8, verse 6. Hebrews 8, verse 6. We'll come back to 12 in just a moment. Hebrews 8, verse 6. The Bible says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them upon their hearts, and I will, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man uh, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. What a beautiful promise. And then look at verse 13. In that he saith, The new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. There was an overlap of 40 years from the beginning of the church and the new covenant to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. While the apostles still went to the temple to pray and to teach, that would soon be gone. The old is ready to vanish away. It's disappearing. The church was still seen by many to be an offshoot of Judaism, but it would soon stand alone. Now go back to chapter 12 with me. With this context in mind of the new covenant, go back to chapter 12, verse 26. The Bible says, Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things which are, that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. We know this is a quote from Haggai 2. We even see the phrase, once more here, used again. Now go on to verse 28. Wherefore, or because of the shaking... We, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So the shaking here is the shaking of the old world, the old system of worship, and now the nations of the world would come to the heavenly Zion, the new Jerusalem, and worship in spirit and in truth. This also includes a shaking of the old power system. Revelation 20, we see that Satan is bound, and that he should deceive the nations no more. In the Old Testament, we see fallen angels over the nations. Places like Daniel 10 talks about that. The Bible tells us in places like Ephesians 4 that Christ led a host of captives. In other words, Christ took control of the nations that had been given to the angels, and he took supreme authority himself. Thus we have Matthew 28, 18, 
where we see that all power or all authority is given to Christ. In other words, he's shaking the old power system. So with this new temple being built, he says, the time is coming in a short time. I'm going to shake the heavens and shake the earth. And we see that the shaking on in, in Hebrews is those things are shaken are so that those things will pass away and the new will come, which cannot be shaken. What's coming? How about the new Jerusalem? Paul says, well, Jerusalem, which is down here, that's, what's her name? Hagar, Galatians chapter three and four. She's not our mother. We're not children of the bondwoman. We're children of the free woman. Who does Sarah represent? The new Jerusalem, Paul said, is the mother of us all. In other words, the old system was being destroyed. It was being taken away. The old temple worship system. Go back to Haggai. warning these, these men who are looking at this temple and saying, oh, this is less grandiose than the old temple. God's saying, hold on. In a short time, I'm going to show you a temple that cannot be touched, cannot be shaken, cannot be destroyed, much more beautiful than what you see here. Haggai 2, verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. This is a great comfort to the people. They had very little with which to accomplish the work of God. And God reassures them, I have all the resources in the world. This should speak to us as well. We have the biblical account of God providing for his people, don't we? We have much in church history of God providing for his people. We have stories in this church of God providing things that we didn't have. God has all the means all the time. Never worry about the means for God's work. God has everything. The silver is mine. They're saying, how are we going to build this temple with our lack of resources? God says, just work. Just work. The gold is mine. The silver is mine. He could drop it in their lap just like that. Verse 9. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former. What a shock to these older Jewish saints weeping over the temple. It's not as beautiful as the old one. God says, I'm going to make the glory of this latter house greater than that of Solomon's house. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Why would the glory of this house be greater than the first? Remember, he's speaking to this older generation who saw the old house. Those who were sorrowful. Real quickly, turn to Ezra chapter 3. Let me show you that. Ezra chapter 3. This is a kind of a parallel time. Return of the captives. Ezra 3.10. Ezra 3.10, the Bible says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, but many of the priests and Levites and chiefs of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy 
from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted the loud shout, and the noise is heard afar off. You envision this mixture. The young people are excited. They're, yes, the, the, the Lord's house is being built. And the old people are weeping out loud, saying, it's not as beautiful. We've lost the glory of the temple. And then God comes to these people and says, the glory of this latter house will be greater than that of Solomon. How could it be? We know that Herod's temple was beautiful and ornate. We know that from history. But how could it be greater than the glory of Solomon's? Turn to Malachi chapter 3. Let me show you. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, and say the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. The temple that was being built would be more glorious than Solomon's temple because the Lord himself would come to the temple. This is the temple being built that Jesus would come to. And he would be like a refiner, like a fuller soap. What does soap do? It cleanses. It purifies. Jesus cleansed the temple twice in his ministry. Twice. The glory of this house was greater because the Lord was coming to it himself to judge it, to cleanse it. And then he says, in a little while, in a short time, I'm going to shake it. I'm going to shake it. And this temple is going to be destroyed. What did Jesus say? What? Destroy this temple? I'll build it in three days. Say the, the brick and mortar? No, no, no. His body. His body. The temple we have today cannot be shaken, cannot be touched. The armies of the world cannot tear it down. There'll never be another invasion of God's kingdom and a burning of his temple because his temple is spiritual. We are building blocks. We are, we are that temple. We dwell with the spirit of God today. He's telling them, don't mourn the old temple. This temple's going to be greater because God's coming to purify his people. And then he's going to shake it. He's going to destroy it. And what's replacing it will never be shaken again. The glory of the Lord will fill the eternal temple of his people. God dwells with us today. You know that? Do we understand that? The glory. God dwells with us today. We have unparalleled access to God today. We enter right into the throne room of God the Father. I venture to say, even Adam couldn't go there. I believe that when he walked with God in the garden, it was the Word, the second person of the Godhead. I say that because Jesus came to explain to us the Father. We didn't know the Father before that. We can venture today where Adam couldn't go. 
because of the Son of God, because we are part of the temple of God. The lesson for us tonight is pretty straightforward. Enjoy the past, but keep your eyes on the future. The glory of the kingdom of God is yet to come. Don't ever say to yourself, the good days are in the past. It'll never be that good again. It will be glorious in the future. Glorious. Secondly, God has all money and all means. Don't worry. God has everything you and I will ever need until the day that we die. Every need supplied, every need met. Nothing to worry about. And number three, the glory of the new covenant is so much greater than the glory of the old. What we have today, Haggai couldn't have dreamed about in his day. Couldn't have dreamed about it. When they build this new temple they're building right here, they can still only go so far. And they're cut off from the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. That's been torn down. That veil was torn in two, and we were ushered into the presence of God. Christian, the glory is not in the past. It's in the future. We dwell with Christ today through the Spirit. We will dwell with him in person forever. What a beautiful picture of the glory that is to come. So don't ever weep over the past. Don't let your past define who you are. Don't think the glory days are done. No, 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 no. You're defined by who God is, and the glory is yet to come when Christ is finally crowned king over this whole world. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. The wicked will be consigned to the lake of fire. The righteous will shine like the stars forever and ever. The glory is yet to come. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time together in the Word tonight. What an encouraging word for the people of Haggai's day, the people of our day. It can be so discouraging to see the wickedness of our nation, the wickedness of mankind, to see the apathy and the worldliness of the churches around us, so many of them just given over to whatever feels right to them. But the glory days aren't in the past, they're in the future. You're doing a work that none of us can even fathom right now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the the temple that we have today where you dwell with us through your spirit. Thank you so much for the sacrifice of the cross. Now there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. You remember your covenant. When I sin, you remember your covenant. That sin was paid for. There's no condemnation. I pray that you would make Christ glorious to us tonight, Lord. Don't let us be brought down by our sin or by the worldliness and sin around us. But help us to see that the glory lies ahead and Christ is King. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.